Welcome, everyone, to Alumni and Entrepreneurship at INSEAD. Uh, we are your hosts, John Kang and Rahul Thakkar, bringing to you down-to-earth yet inspiring perspectives on entrepreneurship, startups, and scale-ups. In today's episode, we will look at entrepreneurship from the perspective of a founder, exploring the founding of a company. So today's guest is Julia Artope, uh, 17J MBA at INSEAD. Uh, so Julian is a founder of Zenium, which offers invisible braces for a very reasonable price of $2,000. Uh, so recently in the end of November 2019, Zenium raised almost $14 million in a Series A funding from very famous investors such as Sequoia India uh, to help fuel its expansion plan. So without further ado, thank you very much, Julian, for your time today. And let's kick off. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your career journey uh, that you took before you arrived at Zenium? And you know, telling us a little about what were some of the key experiences that serve you as an entrepreneur uh, later? Absolutely. First, first of all, thanks guys for setting this up. Thanks, John and Raul. Um, I think it's a really, really great initiative. Uh, we need more founders at INSEAD. So um, I've been myself in entrepreneurship for the past 14 years, so all of, all of my career life. And um, the first company I joined uh, was very successful and made me a little bit cocky when it came to, to founding. So uh, at the young age of 23, I started um, my, my first company and I learned very, very quickly. I had zero idea about how to scale companies or raise funding or think about strategy. And so I made it my mission to learn from great founders. And um, I got very lucky twice, um, was uh, in the executive boards of, uh, of companies um, that, uh, that were very successful once for four years in London for a digital payments company that later on got sold to CBC for 600 million pounds and uh, for four years in sub-Saharan Africa building very web 1.0-like platforms. Um, where, where then we've gotten uh, Tiger Global and a large uh, Swiss media company on board. And that gave me the opportunity to then uh, first get married and then move together with my wife to Singapore. Uh, both of us went to INSEAD uh, in 2016. And I always wanted to found straight out of INSEAD because after eight years after that failed founding experience, I felt like I was ready for that again. And I was looking um, all throughout uh, the studies for, for the right idea to find. And unfortunately, it was very frustrating for me. Um, while, while all of my uh, peers were, were going off to consulting or finding their dream job, I was sitting there and uh, I, I didn't come up with an idea that I thought was right. And um, so uh, straight out of INSEAD, I uh, actually joined another startup here in the region in KL, um, where I was separated from my wife um, for one year. So um, she took a job here at a corporate in Singapore and I had to fly in from KL uh, every weekend. Um, that, that was a tough time back then. And uh, then in August, 2018, um, finally, um, started uh, started Zenium and uh, incorporated the, the company, but again, took us took us one year to get here. And um, how did you come up with the idea for Zenium? And what was the process like turning the beginnings of this idea into what it is today? 
Right. So, so during during the time at INSEAD, I was I was already like scouting for, yeah, for different ideas on on what kind of company it could be, and that was from like space stuff to healthcare. I started maybe looking into different sectors that I thought would be interesting, and it became quite clear for me that healthcare was one of them. And then I tried to combine that with the notion of what would I really enjoy running on a day-to-day basis? And, and there I, I thought about, you know, I've, I've been doing B2B and B2C companies and I always enjoyed the consumer side much more. And so for me, it became clear, hey, I want to do healthcare and, um, and consumer. And then I started researching a little bit around ideas um, that would make sense. And I think one of the one of the issues for me was that many of the ideas that um, that I that I thought about um, hit a snag when it came to um, would they be working and viable here in Southeast Asia or is it something that I would be good at at running right so um, we we looked for instance into some diabetes place and uh, we saw hey there's already a lot of competitors here in the market and probably I don't have the personal background to execute something like that well. Um, and then towards the end of 2017, for the first time, I uh, came across Invisible Graces and I saw Invisalign, which is the inventor of that space, was, was the best performing stock in the S&P 500. So there was a very, very strong case um, that, that this is a big sector and that by itself, this can be a huge idea. Um, and they were already the first companies that were doing um, this kind of idea in a, in a D2C play. And finally, most of the patents, which most of the IP, which Invisalign owned at that space, fell around that time. And, and so I really had that feeling of, hey, I might just have discovered something that really has the right timing and product market fit um, that's, that's connected to the rising Asian middle class, which, which all wants to get their smile fixed, um, that, uh, that could be a good fit for us. And so um, after, after seeing all of the stars align on that, um, I started researching more on the idea. I looked a little bit into the legalities of everything. And since I didn't find significant, uh, significantly funded competitors, or any other obstacles in that, uh, we incorporated the company and uh, yeah, then, then moved back to Singapore and uh, yeah, uh, launched it in August 2018. Um, it, it sounds, it, so it, what strikes me when I listen to this, Julian, is that um, it's very, almost very, a, a strategic choice that you made in terms of like, you know, it was the timing was right. Um, it was also something that you were that you were into, and then you also saw whether there was uh, an opening in terms of the competition. And so um, it, it, it seems to me that it is, such a, it is a very strategic decision to um, launch a business like this. Look, I think one of the biggest issues I oftentimes have when I speak to founders is that, you know, I ask them, okay, what's, what's the big role model for your idea? Where in the rest of the world has this worked before? And whenever somebody tells me, oh, I, I came up with it myself, right? It's, it's, it doesn't exist anywhere. This is going to be completely groundbreaking, completely innovative. Um, then I become very skeptical because for that to be true, um, there's only two, two options, right? Option number one is 
you are really the first person on earth that is thinking about this. And if that's true, then big congratulations to you. But option number two, which is much more likely, is that somebody else thought about it already and tried it and failed with it. And that's why personally, I try to minimize product market fit risk to a large extent. Um, it's it's just, just my personal preference, you know, startups already are so risky by itself um, that, that you wanna, wanna de-risk as much within the process. And um, for me, it helped to at least have some, some role models and some macro factors that, that supported that decision. Right, right. And I think another factor that really reduces the risk um, also sort of on the personal stress end is co-founders. And so uh, I, I wanted to ask you, um, how did you meet um, your co-founders of Zenium? And um, how do you assign responsibilities um, so that you guys are just working well together? right now right so um one of one of my co-founders is a um, famous local doctor here in singapore a famous dentist and i met him by sheer luck right when we were testing the product and when i was putting some ads live um uh, he reached out to me and he connected and said like hey what is this product i want to learn a little bit more about that um and i said hey wow that's that's perfect i'm actually looking for a dentist that wants to do this with you um, and uh, on, on that end, also the INSEAD network helped a little bit because uh, one of my study mates, um, uh, her husband uh, was an orthodontist, so he also helped to connect me um, within the community here at INSEAD. And uh, Fred, uh, our, our COO, he's the opposite to me in many ways, right? Like while I'm very 80-20 and prioritize speed above anything else, He's a very deep thinker and he's the guy that, that when I ask him, hey, how can we do that? You know, uh, in the very early days, he was actually sitting um, at INSEAD because we didn't really have an office. Um, and he, he just locked himself into a breakout room for uh, 24 hours and he came back out with a full-blown production system that he just hacked together. And um, yeah, here, so, so I think it's very important that, that you have people that are extremely complimentary to you, um, especially in the early days of the company, but also people that you can fight with um, because the quality of your decisions is just going to be that much, much more important. And whenever you guys hit a crisis and you're learning to fight with each other only in that crisis for the first time, um, then, then that's maybe already a little bit too late. So during the, the interviews, when you're selecting your co-founders, make sure that you're testing for this stuff. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think uh, I just wanted to comment. I mean, it, it may sound like, you know, it was a very serendipitous thing for you to have found to, for you to have met your co-founder. But at the same time, I feel like it was also because you actually put yourself out there, you know, um, you were actually, um, you know, showing other people that this is what you're working on. And, and in order for them to get, be attracted to you, they need to see, you know, what you're working on. So I, I thought that was actually a really um, interesting point. Um, yeah. So, so there was one, one piece of advice um, my, my brother gave me who's, uh, who's running um, or who has been in startups for the last 20 years and is running a company in Berlin. And his notion was um, that while you need to find co-founders as quickly as possible, in the beginning, you could consider 
um, actually incorporating the company and raising the first amount of capital um, nearly by yourself um, just to, um, to have that advantage on speed and to also make sure that the company never is locked when it comes to decision making um, during the most critical time of its existence, which is the first six to 12 months. And uh, for, for us, even though we, we didn't need that because we didn't uh, enter a crisis, there was always something that I, that I had in the back of, uh, of my mind. I have seen many companies with like five founders that all have the same shareholding in the beginning um, and uh, that, can, that can be a recipe for disaster. Yeah, that, yeah, definitely. That's, that's definitely a realistic view on things. Um, and, and, but moving on to the, um, you know, the progress of Zenium in, in its growth, um, there must have been some tipping point um, around Zenium when you felt like this was going to take off. Um, can you please describe that point to us? Yeah, so I think for us, you know, when we thought about the company in the beginning, we were really religious about finding product market fit and not, not lying to us about what that means. So before we had a product, before we launched a website, we said we want to do X amount in revenue here in the market of Singapore um, to, to kind of see that we have gotten product market fit. And um, the second stage was then for us to say, okay, we also want to show that we can replicate that success in at least one market that is widely different to Singapore here in Southeast Asia. And only when both of these milestones are hit, so hard revenue and kind of international expansion, um, then we are confident that the core product that we have created is actually working. And um, then, then they were in, in terms of being able to sell it. Um, and then there was a third uh, milestone that we had, which was NPS, so Net Promoter Score, the happiness um, of our customers with the product. And we are selling invisible braces, right? So we are straightening people's teeth. And that's something where you only see six to nine months later whether what you're doing actually um, is successful and whether your customers are liking that. Um, and um, so that was, that was where um, you can sell, obviously I can, I can go to you and I can sell, I'm going to straighten your teeth in a more affordable way than other solutions, but to then see whether we have been successful, we would only learn about that six to nine months later. And I think, um, we had to be very careful to keep that focus within the company to say, if we get any bad results from customers and we would check in on them every month, ask them to up upload pictures of their teeth every five to 10 days when they would switch to a new set of aligners to really know is our product working. And only when all of these three milestones were hit, we had the feeling of, okay, we have product market fit and therefore we have a strong enough story to go out and raise funds from uh, Sequoia in that case. And I think what I see oftentimes is founders are not choosing the right metrics. So, right, instead of revenue, we could have chosen something like uh, website visits or Instagram likes or leads or, or interest into our product. And, and we wanted to be very, very strict with us to make sure that we measure as deep into the funnel um, as, we, as we could. 
Um, and uh, we could have raised maybe a little bit earlier, even before we had the first cohorts of customers in. Um, but we also said, hey, we really want to wait until we know that the product works before we start raising additional funds and um, take that to, to scale. So I think that was, um, that was the most important like milestones for us. And once we had all three of that and we expanded into, into Thailand um, by that time, so that was our international market where we saw, hey, our playbook is working and the product is um, as desired in Thailand as it is in Singapore. Um, that's really when we had the feeling of, okay, we are onto something here. Um, and now, now it's about making this as big as quickly as possible. And um, so, Julian, I wanted to talk to you a little about investors. So, you know, I'm sure a lot of my colleagues are interested in knowing, given that we're doing our class in private equity and venture capital with Claudia now in P4. Um, so, you know, if I look at your history, at Xenium's history in Crunchbase, for example, there are two like major milestones that I'd like to discuss a little about. So the first one is, you know, you went through Sequoia's uh, four-month accelerator program called Surge and ended up with a $1.5 million check for seed funding. And then more recently, you raised um, $14 million from additional investors such as RTP. So could you tell us a little more about the process of fundraising and participating in the accelerator and also some of the nuances of dealing with these different investors? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's one part which I don't think is on crunch base, um, which is the angel round or the friends and family round, however you want to call it, um, that we raised beforehand. And my advice would always be make sure that you already have that round closed. So for us, that was uh, 500,000 US dollars. Um, and we had that closed or committed at least before we even had the company incorporated. Um, so before things even, even took off. And that really, really helped us um, because it made sure that um, we were able from day one to hire good people, but also to, um, to put significant money into marketing and that really accelerated us finding product market fit, as I, as I outlined before. Um, and oftentimes what happens is, you know, somebody says, okay, I'm just going to start this company and I'm going to see where I'm, where I'm getting at. And then I see whether I can raise some money. And I think you need to have a very, very clear fundraising strategy before you even incorporate your company. So think about who are the angels you want to raise from and how much do you want to raise when you start the company? And how many months into it would you love to get your first seed round? And how many months after that would you like to get your Series A? Right? And that at least you should have written down and kind of strategized for um, initially. And, and then anyways, reality hits you. Um, but at least you, you, you have that as, um, as your North Star. And for us, what happened is we raised uh, from angels that I knew from previous startup jobs, right? So they were um, either successful founders or investors, and they knew, knew me from previous times. Um, so uh, it, was, it was easy to, to kind of explain to them what I was doing. And usually as an angel investor, you mainly look at the team and you mainly ask yourself, are the people behind it, uh, the people I want to invest my money in. Luckily, um, we already worked together. So uh, both sides had some, some confidence from that perspective. And um, 
when I, when I then was, when we were seeing that the business was taking off after we raised the initial um, uh, friends and family and angel round, um, we, we tried to be as ambitious as possible in the selection of our investors. Um, one of my angels always says, you actually want to race without ever having to do a pitch deck. That's the perfect run. And even though that's not always true, what he means by that is that um, you just get the right introductions at the right point in time. And uh, that the company is built in such a way that, um, that you don't have to do any cold calls. And this is where the angels really came, came through for us was that they had um, good connections um, to the local funds here. So when we were thinking about the seed fund um, and we, uh, we got connected uh, to Sequoia and there already was that kind of personal connection there. Um, I would say then also we got a little bit lucky because Sequoia was just setting up their search program and Shailendra Singh, who is probably the best or most renowned investor here in the region in India and in Southeast Asia. He's an absolute legend that built um, uh, Sequoia India together, um, together with some other partners there. Um, he came to Southeast Asia and he said, hey, I want to wanna start seed funding for, um, for Sequoia, which was an area that they didn't touch up on up until that time. And uh, we were the first search cohort um, and for us, it was an absolutely amazing experience because we immediately got connected to the Sequoia network here in the region. And um, for a young company, especially uh, if, it's, if it's run by a foreigner here in the market, um, then um, there's few things that are as important to, to have a good network um, of mentors, advisors, and obviously business partners. And um, their Sequoia, um, yeah, uh, did an absolutely amazing job in making sure um, that uh, that we did not only get the money, but also their insights and their connections. Um, and uh, they also helped us to a certain extent to construct um, our Series A, which which then happened in November last year. And and so I think to to always when you choose investors, to always choose the people that can already fund your next round is, is one of the most important parts, but also for you as a, as a founder to have the clarity of, hey, what are the milestones that you need to hit? What are the business metrics that you need to hit um, to, to get to the next round? Um, super critical because that will inform how fast or how slow you have to go. I agree. And, and Julian, I think that's a fascinating uh, insight into the process, especially in this situation where you know, due to the coronavirus crisis, obviously capital is going to be a little more limited. So having the right strategy beforehand when you incorporate uh, is, is key. And on the coronavirus, actually, so, you know, obviously that's a big theme now. Um, I wanted to just like understand, you know, what are the lessons that you have personally learned from this crisis and environment? And also more importantly, you know, since we're launching this podcast to kind of inspire our students to look at it from a glass half full perspective rather than glass half empty. You know, what are some interesting opportunities that you at Zenium have spotted in this, in this environment? Right. So I think first of all, it's obviously not a great time generally and to fundraise. So I am super, super happy and, and, and uh, lucky to a certain extent that, that we uh, just got money in the bank in November 
I know of some smaller competitors that have been struggling very much to raise funds. Some actually had to shut down. Um, and, and what it helps us to do um, right now is uh, to, to really cement and kind of dominate the leadership in our sector here in Southeast Asia because of Corona. Um, on the other hand, you could obviously argue, hey, for a consumer company like ours that has um, a non-essential product, will that not really affect um, consumer spending? So I think what it comes down to for us um, within the business is to write, find the right strategies around this um, and to make sure that, um, that we can really weather this storm in the right way, which by now I'm quite confident about, especially because I see um, how hard it is hitting our competition in this, in this case. So um, it gives me the confidence to come out as number one. But if I were at INSEAD right now and I would be um, thinking about founding a company, I guess you, you really have to take Corona into, into account. Um, if you had an idea that would have worked just before COVID, think twice whether you can still execute it like this because the market environment or the funding environment right now is really, really brutal. And we see term sheets being broken. We see founders that even that had SHAs and SSAs um, signed that don't actually get their money. And so the, the biggest question is, um, does your strategy still work? And if it doesn't, then, then just find something different. It doesn't make sense that you waste at least one to three years of your life for, for an idea that right now just might not work. On the other hand, there's enough um, companies that are uh, right now um, successful because they are in segments and in sectors like, uh, for instance, online education or communications, um, or they're targeting aspects like mobile gaming or food delivery, um, or all of the surroundings of these kind of ecosystems that really will benefit uh, in the coming days. So, uh, if you're uh, sorry, in the coming months. So, if your if your idea is in that space, then then potentially you're going to get funding um, even more accelerated. I just think uh, everybody has to to realize that uh, um, yeah, the valuations that we were seeing maybe three or four months ago um, are going to get slashed by quite a bit. And also funds are putting cash conservation as their first priority right now. Absolutely. And, and as a last question, Julian, um, if you had a time machine and could, back, could go, go back to 2017 uh, when you, know, you were doing your MBA at NCAD, what tips would you give to yourself? Don't, don't get too frustrated if you don't exactly know what you're going to do right after the MBA. Um, don't get drawn into the whole MBB craze if that's not what you came initially to do um, for to INSEAD. I've seen too many people that, that kind of um, came to INSEAD to, to do a radical change um, and then they ended up doing the same thing. And um, I, had, I had a couple of crises because I wasn't, wasn't sure, right? I, I came there to, to come out with that brilliant idea and wanted to found right off the gates. And um, I couldn't do that. And eventually it was the best thing that happened to me um, because otherwise I never would have come across the idea um, of Zenium. So don't get too upset if you don't immediately find um, something or have a job straight, straight out of INSEAD. Um, what we can offer, by the way, is um, 
if there's anyone out there right now that uh, wants to occupy themselves and is looking, let's say, for an internship, um, we're, we're on full remote work here in Singapore right now for the team, but we're always taking in uh, interns. We actually have, I think by now, five people from INSEAD working full-time for us at Zenium. We are more than 150 people across seven markets. Um, and we're always looking for, for good talent to, to join us. And then please also feel free to write to me directly. Always happy to, to speak to you um, and see whether, whether you can either join on a, on a full-time position or um, with an internship. So always happy to support there um, if you have any questions. Um, thank you so much, Julian, for being very approachable um, and for sharing your points today. I personally think we heard a variety of really um, fascinating points today because we could have heard them from the founder himself who went through this whole entrepreneurship journey. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we're out of time today, so we will have to wrap up. But thank you, Julian, again for sharing your story uh, about Zenium and your life. Um, and um, stay tuned for more inspiring perspectives on entrepreneurship, startups, and scale-ups through the podcast Alumni in Entrepreneurship at INSEAD. Thank you very much, Julian. Thank you, Julian. Thanks, John. Thanks, Raul.